Chapter Eleven B of the Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Everyday Life of Abraham Lincoln by Francis Fisher Brown. Chapter Eleven B. Their opinions of each other. Lincoln and Douglas on the stump. Slavery, the leading issue. Scenes and anecdotes of the great debate. Pen picture of Lincoln on the stump. Humors of the campaign. Soon after the arrangements for the debate had been made, Senator Douglas visited Alton, Illinois. A delegation of prominent Democrats there paid their respects to him, and during the conversation one of them congratulated Douglas on the easy task he would have in defeating Lincoln, at the same time expressing surprise at the champion whom he had selected. Douglas replied, "'Gentlemen, you do not know Mr. Lincoln. I have known him long and well, and I know that I shall have anything but an easy task. I assure you, I would rather meet any other man in the country than Abraham Lincoln." This was Douglas's mature opinion of the man whom, years before, he had said, in his characteristic way, "'Of all the damned Whig rascals about Springfield, Abe Lincoln is the ablest and honestest.'" On another occasion Douglas said, I have known Lincoln for nearly twenty-five years. There were many points of sympathy between us when we first got acquainted. We were both comparatively boys, and both struggling with poverty in a strange land. I was a schoolteacher in the town of Winchester, and he a flourishing grocery-keeper in the town of Salem. He was more successful in his occupation than I was in mine, and hence more fortunate in the world's goods. Lincoln is one of those peculiar men who perform with admirable skill everything they undertake. I made as good a schoolteacher as I could, and when a cabinet-maker I made as good bedsteads and tables as I could, although my old boss says that I succeeded better with bureaus and secretaries than with anything else. But I believe that Lincoln was always more successful in business than I, for his business enabled him to get into the legislature. I met him there, however and had a sympathy with him because of the uphill struggle we both had had in life. He was then just as good at telling an anecdote as now. He could beat any of the boys in wrestling or running a foot-race, in pitching quoits or pitching a copper, and the dignity and impartiality with which he presided at a horse-race or fist-fight excited the admiration and won the praise of everybody that was present. I sympathized with him because he was struggling with difficulties, and so was I. Mr. Lincoln served with me in the legislature of 1836, then we both retired, and he subsided or became submerged and was lost sight of as a public man for some years. In 1846, when Wilmot introduced his celebrated proviso, and the abolition tornado swept over the country, Lincoln again turned up as a member of Congress from the Sangamon District. I was then in the Senate of the United States, and was glad to welcome my old friend." Lincoln, in a speech delivered two years before the joint debate, had spoken thus of Senator Douglas. Twenty-two years ago Judge Douglas and I first became acquainted. We were both young then, he a trifle younger than I. Even then we were both ambitious, I perhaps quite as much as he. With me the race of ambition has been a failure, a flat failure. With him it has been one of splendid success. His name fills the nation, and is not unknown even in foreign lands. I affect no contempt for the high eminence he has reached, so reached 
that the oppressed of my species might have shared with me in the elevation, I would rather stand on that eminence than wear the richest crown that ever pressed a monarch's brow. A few days before the first discussion was to take place, Lincoln, who had become conscious that some of his party friends distrusted his ability to meet successfully a man who, as the Democrats declared and believed, had never had his equal on the stump, met an old friend from Vermillion County, and shaking hands inquired the news. His friend replied, "'All looks well. Our friends are wide awake, but they are looking forward with some anxiety to these approaching joint discussions with Douglas.' A shade passed over Lincoln's face, a sad expression came and instantly passed, and then a blaze of light flashed from his eyes, and with his lips compressed and in a manner peculiar to him, half serious and half jocular, he said, "'My friend, sit down a minute, and I will tell you a story. You and I, as we have travelled the circuit together, attending court, have often seen two men about to fight. One of them, the big or the little giant, as the case may be, is noisy and boastful. He jumps high in the air, strikes his feet together, smites his fists, brags about what he is going to do, and tries hard to skeer the other man. The other man says not a word. His arms are at his side, his fists are clenched, his teeth set, his head settled firmly on his shoulders. He saves his breath and strength for the struggle. This man will whip as sure as the fight comes off. Good-bye, and remember what I say. The spirit and purpose with which Lincoln went into the contest are shown also in the following words. I shall not ask any favors at all. Judge Douglas asks me if I wish to push this matter to the point of personal difficulty. I tell him, no. He did not make a mistake in one of his early speeches when he called me an amiable man, though perhaps he did when he called me an intelligent man. I again tell him, no. I very much prefer, when this canvass shall be over, however it may result, that we at least part without any bitter recollections of personal difficulties." The speeches in these joint discussions were entirely extemporaneous in form, yet they were reported and printed in all the prominent papers in the West, and found eager readers throughout the country. The voice and manner, which add so much to the effect of a speaker, could not be reproduced on the printed page, nor could full justice be done in a hasty transcript, to the force and fitness of the language employed. Still, the impressions of those who heard them at the time, as well as later and cooler analyses of them, have agreed in pronouncing these debates among the most able and interesting on record. The scenes connected with the different meetings were intensely exciting. Vast throngs were invariably in attendance, while a whole nation was watching the result. At Freeport, says an observer, Mr. Douglas appeared in an elegant barouche drawn by four white horses, and was received with great applause. But when Mr. Lincoln came up in a prairie schooner, an old-fashioned canvas-covered pioneer wagon, the enthusiasm of the vast throng was unbounded. At Charleston Lincoln opened and closed the day's debate. It was the fourth discussion, and there was no more doubt of his ability to sustain the conflict. According to Mr. Arnold, Douglas's reply to Lincoln was mainly a defense. Lincoln's close was intensely interesting and dramatic. His logic and arguments were crushing, and Douglas's evasions were exposed with a power and clearness that left him utterly discomfited. Republicans saw it, Democrats realized it, and a sort of panic seized them, 
and ran through the crowd of upturned faces. Douglas realized his defeat, and as Lincoln's blows fell fast and heavy, he lost his temper. He could not keep his seat. He rose and walked rapidly up and down the platform behind Lincoln, holding his watch in his hand, and obviously impatient for the call of time. A spectator says, he was greatly agitated, his long grizzled hair waving in the wind like the shaggy locks of an enraged lion. It was while Douglas was thus exhibiting to the crowd his eager desire to stop Lincoln, that the latter, holding the audience entranced by his eloquence, was striking his heaviest blows. The instant the second hand of his watch reached the point at which Lincoln's time was up, Douglas, holding up the watch, called out, "'Sit down, Lincoln. Sit down. Your time is up.' Turning to Douglas, Lincoln said calmly, "'I will. I will quit. I believe my time is up.' "'Yes,' said a voice from the platform. "'Douglas has had enough. It is time you let up on him.' The institution of slavery was, of course, the topic around which circled all the arguments in these joint discussions. It was the great topic of the hour, the important point of division between the Republican and Democratic parties. Lincoln's exposition of the subject was profound and masterly. At the meeting in Quincy the issue was defined, and the argument driven home with unsparing logic and directness. In closing the debate, he said, I wish to return to Judge Douglas my profound thanks for his public annunciation here today, to be put on record, that his system of policy in regard to the institution of slavery contemplates that it shall last forever. We are getting a little nearer the true issue of this controversy, and I am profoundly grateful for this one sentence. Judge Douglas asks you, why cannot the institution of slavery, or rather, why cannot the nation, part slave and part free, continue as our fathers made it forever? In the first place, I insist that our fathers did not make this nation half slave and half free, or part slave and part free. I insist that they found the institution of slavery existing here. They did not make it so, but they left it so, because they knew of no way to get rid of it at that time. When Judge Douglas undertakes to say that, as a matter of choice, the fathers of the government made this nation part slave and part free, he assumes what is historically a falsehood. More than that, when the fathers of the government cut off the source of slavery by the abolition of the slave trade, and adopted a system of restricting it from the new territories where it had not existed, I maintain that they placed it where they understood, and all sensible men understood, it was in the course of ultimate extinction. And when Judge Douglas asks me why it cannot continue as our fathers made it, I ask him why he and his friends could not let it remain as our friends made it. It is precisely all I ask of him in relation to the institution of slavery, that it shall be placed upon the basis that our fathers placed it upon. Mr. Brooks of South Carolina once said, and truly said, that when this government was established, no one expected the institution of slavery to last until this day, and that the men who formed this government were wiser and better than the men of these days. But the men of these days had experience which the fathers had not, and that experience had taught them the invention of the cotton-gin, and this had made the perpetuation of the institution of slavery a necessity in this country. Judge Douglas could not let it stand upon the basis on which our fathers placed it, but removed it, 
and put it upon the cotton-gin basis. It is a question, therefore, for him and his friends to answer, why they could not let it remain where the fathers of the government originally placed it. In these debates Lincoln often seemed like one transfigured, carried away by his own eloquence and the force of his conviction. He said to a friend during the canvass, "'Sometimes, in the excitement of speaking, I seem to see the end of slavery. I feel that the time is soon coming when the sun shall shine, the rain shall fall, on no man who shall go forth to unrequited toil. How this will come, when it will come, by whom it will come, I cannot tell. But that time will surely come." Again, at the first encounter at Alton, he uttered these pregnant sentences. On this subject of treating slavery as a wrong, and limiting its spread, let me say a word. Has anything ever threatened the existence of this Union save and except this very institution of slavery? What is it that we hold most dear among us? Our own liberty and prosperity. What has ever threatened our liberty and prosperity save and except this institution of slavery? If this is true, how do you propose to improve the condition of things by enlarging slavery? By spreading it out and making it bigger? You may have a when or cancer upon your person, and not be able to cut it out lest you bleed to death. But surely it is no way to cure it, to engraft it, and spread it over your whole body. That is no proper way of treating what you regard a wrong. This peaceful way of dealing with it as a wrong, restricting the spread of it, and not allowing it to go into new countries where it has not already existed, that is the peaceful way the old-fashioned way, the way in which the fathers themselves set us the example. Is slavery wrong? That is the real issue. That is the issue that will continue in this country when these poor tongues of Judge Douglas and myself shall be silent. It is the eternal struggle between these two principles, right and wrong, throughout the world. They are two principles that have stood face to face from the beginning of time, and will ever continue to struggle. The one is the common right of humanity, and the other the divine right of kings. It is the same principle, in whatever shape it develops itself. It is the same spirit that says, You work and toil, and earn bread, and I'll eat it. No matter in what shape it comes, whether from the mouth of a king who seeks to bestride the people of his own nation and live by the fruit of their labor, or from one race of men as an apology for enslaving another race, it is the same tyrannical principle. On still another occasion he used these unmistakable words. My declarations upon this subject of negro slavery may be misrepresented, but cannot be misunderstood. I have said that I do not understand the declaration to mean that all men were created equal in all respects. They are not our equal in color but I suppose that it does mean to declare that all men are created equal in some respects. They are equal in their right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Certainly the negro is not our equal in color, perhaps not in many other respects. Still, in the right to put into his mouth the bread that his own hands have earned, he is the equal of every other man, white or black. It is not in the scope of this narrative to print extended quotations from the speeches made in this memorable contest, but rather to give such reminiscences and anecdotes and description by eye-witnesses 
as will best serve to bring the scenes and actors vividly to mind. Fortunately, many such records are still in existence, and from them some most entertaining personal accounts have been obtained. Among these is an impressive pen-picture of Lincoln on the stump, as admirably sketched by the Rev. Dr. George C. Noyes of Chicago. Mr. Lincoln in repose, says Dr. Noyes, was a very different man in personal appearance from Mr. Lincoln on the platform, or on the stump, when his whole nature was roused by his masterful interest in the subject of his discourse. In the former case he was, as has often been described, a man of awkward and ungainly appearance and exceedingly homely countenance. In the latter case he was a man of magnificent presence and remarkably impressive manner. The writer retains to this day a very vivid impression of his appearance in both these characters, and both on the same day. It was in Jacksonville, in the summer of 1858, and during the great contest with Douglas, when the prize contended for what was a seat in the United States Senate. The day was warm. The streets were dusty and filled with great crowds of people. When Lincoln arrived on the train from Springfield he was met by an immense procession of people on horseback, in carriages, in wagons, and vehicles of every description, and on foot, who escorted him through the principal streets to his hotel. The enthusiasm of the multitude was great, but Lincoln's extremely homely face wore an expression of sadness. He rode in a carriage near the head of the procession, looking dust-begrimed and worn and weary and though he frequently lifted his hat in recognition of the cheers of the crowds lining the streets, I saw no smile on his face, and he seemed to take no pleasure in the demonstrations of enthusiasm which his presence called forth. His clothes were very ill-fitting, and his long arms and hands protruded far through his coat-sleeves, giving him a peculiarly uncouth appearance, though I had often seen him before, and had heard him in court, always with delight in his clearness and cogency of statement his illuminating humour, and his conspicuous fairness and candour. Yet I had never before seen him when he appeared so homely, and I thought him about the ugliest man I had ever seen. There was nothing in his looks or manner that was prepossessing. Such he appeared as he rode in the procession on the forenoon of that warm summer day. His appearance was not different in the afternoon of that day, when in the public square he first stood before the great multitude who had assembled there to hear him. His powers were aroused gradually, as he went on with his speech. There was much play of humour. "'Judge Douglas has,' he said, "'one great advantage of me in this contest. When he stands before his admiring friends, who gather in great numbers to hear him, they can easily see with half an eye all kinds of fat offices sprouting out of his fat and jocund face and indeed from every part of his plump and well-rounded body. His appearance is therefore irresistibly attractive. His friends expect him to be president, and they expect their reward. But when I stand before the people, not the sharpest vision is able to detect in my lean and lank person, or in my sunken and hollow cheeks, the faintest sign or promise of an office. I am not a candidate for the presidency, and hence there is no beauty in me that men should desire me. The crowd was convulsed with laughter at this sally. As the speech went on, the speaker, though often impressing his points with apposite and laughter-provoking stories, grew more and more earnest. He showed that the government was founded in the interest of freedom, not slavery. He traced the steady aggressions of the slave power step by step, 
until he came to declare and to dwell upon the fact of the irrepressible conflict between the two. Then, as he went on to show, with wonderful eloquence of speech and manner, that the country must and would ultimately become not all slave but all free, he was transfigured before his audience. His homely countenance fairly glowed with the splendour of his prophetic speech, and his body, no longer awkward and ungainly, but mastered and swayed by his thought, became an obedient and graceful instrument of eloquent expression. The whole man seemed to speak. He seemed like some grand Hebrew prophet, whose face was glorified by the bright visions of a better day which he saw and declared. His eloquence was not merely that of clear and luminous statement, felicitous illustration, or excited yet restrained feeling. It was the eloquence also of thought. With something of the imaginative, he united rare dialectic power. He felt the truth before he expounded it. But when once it was felt by him, then his logical power came into remarkably effective play. Step by step he led his hearers onward, till at last he placed them on the summit whence they could see all the landscape of his subject in harmonious and connected order. Of these two contrasted pictures of Lincoln, it is only the last which shows him as he was in his real and essential greatness, and not this fully, for it was in his character that he was greatest. He was not merely a thinker, but a thinker for man, directing his thought to the ends of justice, freedom, and humanity. If he desired and sought high position, it was only that he might thus better serve the cause of freedom to which he was devoted. From the time when he withdrew, in a spirit of magnanimity that was never appreciated, in favor of a rival candidate for the United States Senate, it was evident that the cause was more to him than any personal advantage or advancement. Another graphic description of Lincoln's appearance and manner on the stump is given by Mr. Jeriah Bonham, whose account of the famous house-divided-against-itself speech has already found a place in this narrative. When Mr. Lincoln took the stand, says Mr. Bonham, he did not, on rising, show his full height, but stood in a stooping posture, his long-tailed coat hanging loosely around his body, and descending over an ill-fitting pair of pantaloons that covered his not very symmetrical legs. He began his speech in a rather diffident manner, seeming for a while at a loss for words. His voice was irregular, even a little tremulous, as he began his argument. As he proceeded he seemed to gain more confidence, his form straightened up, his face brightened, his language became free and animated. Soon he had drawn the attention of the crowd by two or three well-told stories that illustrated his argument, and then he became eloquent, carrying his audience at will as tumultuous applause greeted every telling point he made. Mrs. John A. Logan, in her Recollections of a Soldier's Wife, says, I always like to think of Mr. Lincoln as he was when I saw him with the eyes of an opponent. His awkwardness has not been exaggerated, but it gave no effect of self-consciousness. There was something about his ungainliness and his homely face which would have made any one who simply passed him in the street remember him. His very awkwardness was an asset in public life in that it attracted attention to him. Douglas, on the other hand, won by the magnetism of his personality. Lincoln did not seem to have any magnetism, though of course he actually did have the rarest and most precious kind. Give Mr. Lincoln five minutes, and Mr. Douglas five minutes before an audience which knew neither, and Mr. Douglas would make the greater impression. But give them each an hour, and the contrary would be true. End of chapter 11b Recording by Bill Borst